Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you'll encourage our hearts. You'll minister to us, Lord. As we go through your word, we ask, Lord, that your word would go through us and clean us out and purge us of those things that are not pleasing to you, Lord. We, we all have. We all are a mixture of pure and impure. And so, Lord, we ask tonight that you just flush us clean. And, Lord, that you recharge us and encourage us and help us, Lord, to be serious about our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My kids, and I imagine all kids, love Coca-Cola. And when my kids were tots, on occasion, we would treat them to a Coca-Cola. But it was always a diluted Coke. We would give them a glass containing half water and half Coca-Cola. And it worked for years. They never really noticed until finally they started picking up on the fact that the Coca-Cola was a lot stronger. It tasted different over at Granddaddy's house than it did at home. And it no longer worked. They wised up. Surely there's nothing wrong with diluting a Coca-Cola. It's a clever Parenting tool for unsuspecting preschoolers. Use it while you can. They'll wise up on you later. James, though, is worried about a different, a very dangerous kind of dilution. He's concerned about the watering down of the gospel. There are people who have taken the gospel, and in order to broaden its appeal, they have stripped it of its power. Someone has observed the gospel has been so diluted that if it were a medicine, it would heal no one. And if it were a poison, it would harm no one. We've forgotten what Philip said to the Ethiopian on the road to Gaza when he wanted to be baptized. In Acts chapter 8, Philip told him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And James would agree to truly believe. You have to believe with all your heart. Real faith is not a casual faith, it's a committed, serious faith. And that's the message here in the book of James. The book begins with an introduction. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was actually the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 55 mentions that Jesus had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. We also know that James was not always a believer. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that during Jesus' earthly ministry, even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers. I imagine it was hard for James to admit that his brother was the Son of God. I mean, James played with Jesus in a sandbox. They were on the same little league team. James was always having to live in the shadow of his big brother, Jesus. He constantly had to listen to Mary. James, why can't you behave like your brother, Jesus? <laughs> James, I see in conduct. Your brother, Jesus, always brings home an A+. What's wrong with you, James? You know, familiarity breeds contempt. And James, I think, was so familiar with Jesus, he was slow to admit his brother's true identity. It was the resurrection, though, that turned him around. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus made a special appearance to his half-brother James. 
And when he realized, when James realized that Jesus had conquered death, it dawned on him why Jesus had always made those A pluses in conduct. Jesus was God. Jesus went, James went, excuse me, from being a doubting brother to being a devoted believer. And James's faith grew rapidly. He became a leader in the church at Jerusalem to the point to where when we get to Acts chapter 15 at the council of Jerusalem, it was James who took charge of the meeting. James was the leader. James was a man of great devotion. Church historian Eusebius said this of James, that he used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's. Because of his constant worship of God. James died in 62 AD. The Jewish leaders, you see, took James to the top of the temple. And there they ordered him to recant his faith in Jesus before the people. But rather than recant, James preached Jesus to the people. And the Jews who took him there became so angry with him that they pushed him off the temple. And when he survived, they beat him to death with clubs. As he knelt and prayed for them. Notice in verse 1, James introduces himself, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, James was Jesus' blood brother. James could have referred to himself and introduced himself as James, the beloved brother of our Lord Jesus. Or maybe even James, The Savior's closest sibling. Or perhaps James, kid brother of God. (laughs) Instead, James is content to call himself a servant. James refuses to pull rank. He refuses to parade his status. He knows he's a sinner saved by grace. And just like every other Christian, it is his honor to simply be a servant. Of his Lord Jesus Christ. James writes to the twelve tribes. Which are scattered abroad greetings. His readers were Jewish believers. Who lived outside the borders of Jerusalem. Verse 2 says. My brethren. Count it all joy when you fall. Into various trials. Now notice he doesn't say. Count it all joy. If you fall. Into various trials. Nope. He says, when you fall into various trials. I wish that I could tell you that becoming a Christian immunizes you from trials and hardships. But it doesn't. Difficulties and persecutions are par for the course. And yet when we face a trial, we're told to count it all joy. The New English Bible puts it, count yourselves supremely happy. What a strange command. What do you mean? When I encounter trials, I should count myself supremely happy? Why should I be happy when I'm confronted with a trial or a difficulty? Well, James tells us why in verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James says that trials will produce two results. Patience or endurance and maturity and growth. If you want endurance, if you want maturity, then you need to count it all joy when God brings a trial across your path. It's been said, God sends trials not to impair us, 
but to improve us. I've heard it put another way. God never sharpens a knife on a stick of butter. Takes a little friction. And it's our trials that keep us from becoming dull and keep us spiritually sharp. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you fall into various trials. Verse 5 encourages us to ask God for wisdom. If you're in the midst of a trial, ask God for the wisdom not to waste the trial, but to understand its purpose in your life. And verse 6 tells us to ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt is flip-flopping back and forth. Don't do that. Stand strong. Verse 8, you see, calls the person who doubts a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This Greek phrase that's translated double-minded means literally facing two directions. In his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan names the doubter in his story, Mr. Facing Both Ways. He understood the meaning of that word. Are you a Mr. or Mrs. Facing Both Ways? You can't make up your mind. Are you a fence straddler? Monday you walk with God, but by Friday you're partying with the world. Hey, if you're facing both ways, you're not giving either 100%. Mr. Facing Both Ways, he's an unhappy saint and he's a miserable sinner. He's on neither side. Verse 7 warns this doubter, Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. To doubt God takes you out from under the spout where the blessings come out. Did you get that? To doubt God takes you out from under the spout where the blessings come out. Believe, stand strong, be faithful. Verses 9 through 10 teach us that one day, all the social distinctions that exist in the world today were all going to be leveled out. And he tells us that that's the way it should be in the church. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. You see, the poor man should realize that he is rich in Christ. And one day those riches will be evident and manifest. The poor, the person with money, on the other hand, he should be humbled. Because he should realize that he's not going to be able to take it with him. He should never flaunt his riches. He knows they're just temporary. Money, you see, won't get you to heaven. And it's interesting, despite what a lot of people think, it won't guarantee you happiness here on earth either. You see, money is a tool to serve God. That's all it is. Cash is not to flash. It's to invest in God's kingdom. That's its purpose. Verse 11 says, For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away. In his pursuits. As Shakespeare penned, golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. When it's time for you to leave this world, all the money in the world won't buy you another single second. The rich man, he passes away just like we all do. Verse 12 encourages us though. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. If you want to be rich, here's how. Endure temptation. 
For to the person who endures temptation, we are promised a crown. He says the crown of life. Verse 13 prohibits us from playing the blame game. He says, don't say I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You see, my vulnerability to temptation is the result of my own sin. It's the result of my own weakness. It's not anyone else's fault. It is certainly not God's fault. It's my own fault. And that's what James says in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, but each one of you is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Don't blame God. It's our problem. That's why we're tempted. That's why we're drawn away. You see, we're drawn away by our own desires. Then when desire has conceived, he says, it gives birth to sin. You see, when an evil inclination in our hearts meets with opportunity, a full-blown evil action results. And then when it is full grown, he says, it brings forth death. It's that full blown evil action that turns into a full grown lifestyle of wickedness and ends up eventually in death. He's all telling us, don't go down the slippery slope. Don't even start down that slope. When you sin, don't excuse it. Don't blame someone else. Take responsibility for your sin and deal with it quickly. That's what James is trying to tell us. Verse 17 reminds us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. I think this verse is the key to overcoming temptation in our life. You won't say yes to sin if you're convinced that every good and perfect gift comes from God. You see, Satan is always selling second best. That's all Satan can offer us is second best. And let me ask you, why opt for seconds? I mean, why drive a Hyundai when you can afford a Mercedes? Why opt for second best? When God supplies us the very best. Always remember verse 17. Every good, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Don't say yes to sin. Say no to sin. Say yes to God. God has your best in mind. God's gifts are good. They will never fail you. If you want the best life has to offer, resist temptation and trust in God. Verse 19 says, be swift to hear, slow to speak. God created us with two ears and one mouth because he wants us to do twice as much listening as talking. In addition, be slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You see, guys, God's will is accomplished God's way. Angry outbursts, they don't help. Our flesh sets back the cause. It does more harm than good. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21 tells us, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Notice it's not the spoken word. It's not the heard word, but it's the implanted word that saves. It's the word that takes root in our heart and begins to grow in our desires and in our will. That's the word that saves and works in our hearts. Verse 22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. D.L. Moody once said, 
Every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. What he meant by that was that the Bible is not just for hearing or for dissecting or for discussing or for debating. It's for doing. You know, it's sad, but in the American church, we have so many good Bible teachers that I think we've sort of spawned a a whole contingency of professional Bible teaching connoisseurs. Like wine tasters, they just kind of go from church to church, just sort of sipping on the teaching, sort of rolling it around in their mouth, commenting on its quality. The only problem is they never obey it. James tells us that to hear the word and not do it, it's a form of deception. A person can hear it enough, they think they've got it, but hearing ain't doing. The word of God, you see, is like a mirror. It reveals the mind of God, but it also reveals our own heart. It exposes our sin. And when you open the Word of God and yet ignore its message, because the message is hard or the message is humbling, then it's like seeing your image in that face and then walking away and forgetting what you saw. James says, be a doer, not just a hearer of God's Word. In chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, James defines for us true religion. He says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. True devotion to God controls my tongue, and it shows compassion on the weak. Until the day she died, my dad took every Sunday afternoon, and he drove to downtown Atlanta to visit his invalid sister in the nursing home. He would always go down and buy Ann a Coca-Cola, and the two of them would just sort of sit there and chit-chat. I used to always accuse him of wanting him to go down to the nursing home because all of the old ladies thought he was good-looking. And they whistled at him when he walked down the hall. But secretly, I admired his devotion to his sister. During the week, Anne would call our house constantly, making sure that he was coming on Sundays. Is Olin coming? Is Olin coming? Are you sure he's coming? And she was just so lonely. She'd just sit there and, and wait for his visits every weekend. And whenever we boys got upset and annoyed by our aunt's relentless phone calls, my dad would remind us of this verse here in James. He would say, hey, undefiled religion is visiting the orphans and the widows in their trouble. You see, taking time to show an interest in people who can never pay you back is the purest form of service to God. Never forget that. James, too, warns us against playing favorites in church. You see, the flight to heaven isn't divided into first class and coach. We need to accept each other as Jesus accepts us. He loves each of us, not because of the clothes we wear or the car we drive or the money we possess. He just loves us. When you see a rich person walk into Calvary Chapel and you think, wow, you know, you know, we need to talk to that fellow. He, he can be a blessing to our church. You know, he could give a lot of money. He could really improve, the, kind of 
elevate the status around here, you know. In fact, we could use his lake house on the weekends. We could probably swim in the pool in his backyard if we got to be good friends with him. If you start thinking like that, check your heart. Don't allow that kind of thinking. Especially if it causes you to walk past the poor and the disheveled fellow. Completely ignoring the poor man in order to shake hands with the rich man. Hey, if that happens, something is desperately wrong. Once there was a street person who wanted to join a church. But the pastor wasn't sure that they wanted that type of member. And he told this bag lady to give him a few weeks to think think it over, whether she could join the church or not. And after a week or so, she came back to the pastor and she said, Hey, have you decided? And he said, No, I'm not quite sure. Would you give me another week? And so on and on this went for several months. Finally, one day in prayer, this woman was praying and the Lord spoke to her and said, My dear child, don't worry about getting into that church any longer. I've been trying for 20 years and they won't let me in either. James says in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality... You commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, no man is strong enough to carry a cross and a prejudice at the same time. You can't be a saint and a snob at the same time. It is okay to have a close circle of friends just as long as you don't let that circle become a closed circle of friends. A closed circle, great. A closed circle, no. The church is no place for cliques. We're a family. Verse 14 raises an interesting question. He says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now notice we're talking about a man who says he has faith but lacks evidence There are no works in his life to prove that his commitment, that his faith is legitimate. Can that sort of faith save him? In other words, what constitutes true saving faith? And he provides us the answer in verses 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body... What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If I told you that a bomb was inside this building, and it was about to detonate, and yet 10, 15 minutes later I found you back in the brook sipping on one of those eggnog smoothies that Bob came up with, you know, it would... Be safe to conclude that you really didn't believe my warning. You really didn't have faith in what I said. You see, when I issue a warning, if all you do is nod or wink or say you believe, but you never act on what you say, then it proves that you never really believed it in the first place. You see, real faith, saving faith, the faith that gets you to heaven 
is faith that is the extent, it, it's the it's faith to the extent that I'm willing to act on what I believe. It is commitment to the point of action. In verse 18, James plays the antagonist. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith is faith. Works are works. And make no mistake, salvation is by faith alone. But here's the message. But if you're really saved, faith will never be alone. It will be accompanied with works, with action, with service. True faith, saving faith, is always accompanied by good and godly works. Verse 24 is a confusing verse to many. James says, you see then that a man is justified by works. And not by faith only. And of course, this seems to oppose Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Martin Luther, when he read these words of James here in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Martin Luther became so upset that he said that James had written a right, strawy epistle. In other words, in his mind, it was of little value. It was just straw. And he doubted the inspiration of the book of James. But there are really no contradictions here. The so-called conflict clears up when you understand the two authors and the perspective from which they're writing. Paul, remember, was a theologian. He was adept at abstracts. James, on the other hand, was the son of a carpenter. He was concerned with finished products. Paul's letters were spiritual schematics. They focused on the inner workings of faith and the relationship of faith with works and so forth, whereas the book of James provides a prototype, a model of what real faith will look like when you see it. Paul, in other words, x-rays the roots of faith, whereas James eyeballs the fruits of faith. Paul says that faith comes first, and it subsequently produces works. And the works don't have any part of the faith. It's faith, and then it's works. And he separates the two, and rightly so. James, on the other hand, says that works always follow faith and are an evidence of faith. And so he sees the two working in harmony with each other, and rightly so. When you package both perspectives together, you get the perfect picture. Your faith is not a faith that saves unless it's a faith that works. James says in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that there is one God, and you do well, but even the demons believe and tremble. In other words, faith is more than just an intellectual nod or assent. The demons have faith, but it's not saving faith. The demon's faith scares him. It doesn't save him. You see, a demon is orthodox in his doctrine, but just agreeing with the facts is never enough. You have to act on what you believe. The rest of chapter 2 provides two examples of faith that works. Abraham and Rahab. In both cases, faith came first. But then faith was evidenced by works. James makes his point in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, You see then that a man is justified by works 
and not by faith only. And in the context of what James is saying here, what he's saying, what he's speaking, he's right. If faith inevitably produces works, then you can't have real faith without works. But remember, James is looking at faith and works as a continuum, as a continuous string. He's not worried about where faith ends and where works begin. Whereas, whereas it's left up to Paul to divide salvation into parts. And he explains that faith not works is the element that saves. But for James, why separate the root from the fruit? They're all one. You can't have one without the other. And so a faith that saves is a faith that works. The Jewish rabbis were pampered by their community. And thus there was never a shortage of men wanting to be teachers. The same situation filtered over into the church. But James chapter 3 begins with a warning to those who aspire to be teachers. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Guys, a teacher wields incredible influence. I'll never forget the Sunday school teacher that I had as a kid. He was an older man. And he stood before the Sunday school class of pre-adolescent boys every week. And in a monotone voice, he would read that week's lesson from the booklet. And he droned on and on and on. And our minds wandered and thought about everything other than the lesson. He did nothing to spice it up. He did nothing to hold our attention. And I now blame the church for recruiting him to teach. They should have never asked him to teach. That man did more harm to us young boys. He did more to cause the young boys in that class to turn from God than all the beer and cigarettes and bare-breasted girly pictures in the whole wide world. He made the Bible boring. And that is the greatest sin That a teacher can commit. If you don't have the gift of teaching. Then just don't be a teacher. Find another way to serve the Lord. And and don't think that being a teacher is. You know really. Oh boy I'd like to do what Sandy does. I'd I'd love to stand up there in front of everybody. And and teach week after week. Well well, you would now. But wait to the day of judgment. (laughs) I'm going to receive the stricter judgment. God's going to be a lot harder on me than he will be on you. So so just be careful before you want to swap places. James warns us, let not many of you become teachers. A teacher assumes a great responsibility. It's not for everyone. Verse 2 tells us, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. If you can control your tongue... The words that you speak, then you can control the rest of your life. In verse 5, James is amazed at how a little thing like the tongue can cause so much damage. It's like the little spark that brings down and burns down the entire forest. Guys, it's impossible to overestimate the damage that can be done by two loose lips. Verse 6 says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. How's that for heavy? 
Hey, a wagging, gossipy tongue is Satan's weapon of choice in his battle against Christ and his church. Verses 7 and 8 point to a sad truth. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. We've got dancing bears and trained seals and talking parrots. But no man can tame the tongue. It's amazing. But how can from the same mouth come blessing and cursing? And yet so often it does. One moment we're praising God. The next moment we're picking a brother apart. Verse 10 says, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Guys, it's time for some of us to put a cork in it. To ask God to change our heart and tame our tongue and help us to watch our words. Verses 14 through 18 contrast two types of wisdom, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is bitter. It divides and it pits people against one another. It's envious and self-seeking and egotistical. It creates factions and friction between people. Look at its bloodline. James says in verse 15, it's earthly, sensual, demonic. You see, earthly wisdom is always a win-lose kind of a deal. Someone always has to end up on top and someone else always has to end up on the bottom. But God's wisdom is always a win-win kind of a deal. Both people benefit. I'll never forget one year Natalie's softball team was playing for the league championship. But in the second inning of the game, it started raining. And it rained and it rained and it rained. And here was an opportunity for the softball association to exercise a little godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, and just sort of declare both teams co-champs, make both sets of girls happy, and let all the parents go home, put them out of their misery. But oh no, oh no, there had to be a winner. There had to be a loser. And so we wasted all afternoon waiting on the rain to stop. God's wisdom looks for ways where everyone can benefit. Whereas man's wisdom looks for ways where one side can win. Verse 17 says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable. And for those of us below, we need a lot of wisdom from above. Verse four, Chapter 4 begins, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? The Greek word translated pleasure is hedoni, from which we get our word hedonism. And hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the chief end of all life. We certainly live in a pleasure-oriented, a pleasure-saturated society today. It's been calculated that each week in the United States, 12 million golfers vie for tee times. Nine million tennis players compete across the nets. Four million skiers glide down the slopes. And half a million hunters and fishermen comb the woods for racks and recreation. When you live, though, strictly for pleasure, you eventually come in conflict with the people around you. 
your pleasure, comes in conflict with their pleasure. And harmonious, healthy relationships, you know, they, they become an impossibility for someone who lives only for their own pleasure. You see, harmonious relationships require commitment and sacrifice and giving and unselfishness, attitudes that are not always pleasurable. Ultimately, the hedonist desire for pleasure ends up in conflict. And so it takes, it ends up with conflict with the other relationships in his life. And that lifestyle for pleasure creates broken relationships. And that's why he says in verse 2, you lust and you do not have. Isn't that interesting? You lust and you do not have. Samuel Johnson once issued the challenge of all that have tried the selfish experiment, let one come forward and say that he has succeeded. He that has made gold his idol, has it satisfied him? He that has toiled in the fields of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can anyone answer in the affirmative? And he answers, not one. King Solomon tried the selfish experiment, didn't he? Gold, ambition, sex, it was all at his fingertips. He tried it all, and yet he concluded in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. That's why James says, you lust and you do not have. It is the inevitable result of every pursuit of pleasure. You lust and you do not have. But then James adds, You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Isn't it interesting? Human beings fight and kill and covet to get the other guy's stuff rather than just asking God for his blessing. It's so tragic, but countries battle and neighbors bicker and competitors try to bankrupt each other for the same reason. They're vying for each other's resources rather than just asking God for His resources. God will give, God will bless if we just humble ourselves and ask. And we're told in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You know, we do ask. When we do ask, we often ask wrong. We ask with the wrong motive. If our concern was God's glory, we would receive God's blessing. But instead, we consume with our, our pleasure, with our own desires in mind. You ask, you do not receive because you want to spend it on your own pleasures, he says. We ask amiss. Chapter 4, verse 4 is why I like to call James the in-your-face epistle. He really gets blunt here. He says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James doesn't mince words. When you were born into God's family, you took a vow of allegiance to your Lord Jesus Christ. We vowed to love Him with our whole hearts. We vowed to make Him the object of our desires and our affections. And this is why God considers our passion for pleasure or profit a betrayal to our vow. James calls it spiritual adultery. 
Our hearts belong to Jesus, not the pleasures of this world. God is jealous for our affections. Never forget that. And He desires our unrivaled devotion. Verse 6 is good news, but He gives more grace. And don't we all need it? Living in a world full of allurement, how can we resist the temptation? How can we reserve our hearts for Jesus? The answer is grace. And God gives more grace. Reserve your heart for Jesus and He will fill it with His grace and His love. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're also told to submit to God and resist the devil. Resist, don't retreat. Take a stand. Call the devil's bluff. Stand in Jesus' name. When the devil tempts us, remind him of the cross and of his defeat. Resist the devil and he will be forced to flee. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I like what Kent Hughes writes. He says, there are two views which the Christian ought to cultivate with all that he has. The devil's back and the face of God. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. In other words, treat sin seriously. Verse 10 tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Oh boy, no one knows. No one knows What's going to happen tomorrow? No one knows if we're even going to wake up tomorrow. You know, when you start getting dogmatic, when you start saying, well, I will do this, I will go there. You know, you've really lost touch with the reality of life. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns. You never really know what tomorrow is going to bring. It's been said, life is like fighting a gorilla. You don't rest when you get tired. You rest when the gorilla gets tired. There's a lot in life that's beyond our control. He says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Like a puff of warm breath on a winter's day. That's your life. And so how can you speak definitively about the future when you're not even guaranteed you'll wake up in the morning? Verse 15 concludes, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We shall live and do this or that. You know, the Puritans were fond of the Latin expression, Deo Volente, or God willing. When the early Methodists signed their letters, they would add the initials DV after their name, or Deo Volente. In other words, their plans were contingent on God's plans. I think a key in life is the ability to be flexible. To be adaptable. I like what Pastor Chuck says. It's his beatitude. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Remembering that God is sovereign. That God controls all situations. And that he can often stop or redirect my plans in midstream. Helps me to maintain the right attitude toward life. You know, the saying is true. The bend in the road is not the end of the road if you're willing to make the turn. Reminds me of the little boy who was holding a ball and bat in his hands. And just before he tossed the ball up in the air to hit it with the bat, he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. 
And he tossed up the ball and he swung and he missed it. Missed it by a mile. But undaunted, he picked the ball back up, the bat back up. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he threw the ball up in the air and he swung and he missed it again. Did the whole thing a third time. I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Threw the ball up, swung at it, missed it. Laid his bat down and he said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) Hey, the key to success in life is the ability to go with the flow. Verse 17 tells us, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, hey, since we don't know the future, since we don't even know if we're going to be a part of the future, then, hey, while we have the opportunity, let's do good. Let's serve the Lord. Let's live our lives so that they count for Jesus today. We may not have tomorrow. In chapter 5, James rebukes those who have heaped up treasure in the last days. Guys, having money is not a sin, but trusting in material riches is a sin. Temporal treasures will rot. And when the Lord's return is so much on the horizon as it is today, it's foolish to amass a fortune here on this earth when we could be using that money for good. Verse 5 predicts judgment. He says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You see, James sees the rich man as a Thanksgiving turkey. He's getting fattened up for the day of judgment. It reminds me of the Wells Fargo worker who stole a single silver dollar from the company every day for 30 years. He would bring the coin home, take it from his pocket, and put it in the trunk up in his attic. But one day, he dropped in the last silver dollar. For that night, while he was sleeping in his bed, which happened to be just under the trunk that was in the attic, that trunk had finally become heavy enough to where it broke through the rafters and came crashing through the ceiling And landed right on top of the man sleeping in his bed, killing him that very night. The wealthy man who had gained his riches dishonestly. It appeared as if he had gotten away with his crime. But in the end, he didn't. Judgment will come. And thus, James says in chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore, we be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The Lord's going to, he's going to bring Justice on those who who deserve it. He's going to bring blessing and reward to those who have been faithful. We need to endure. We need to establish our hearts. Don't grumble. He says in verse 11, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job 42 verse 10 concludes, And the Lord restored restored. Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Hey, you'll never lose waiting on the Lord. Perseverance always has a payday. Just as Job received twice as much, so will you. Verse 13 asks the question, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Guys, make prayer your first resource, not your last resort. Verse 14 Is any among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. It's ironic. We use sickness as an excuse not to come to church. I can't go to church tonight. I'm sick. But James says that's when you need to come to church. If you're sick, come to church. Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray for you. Now I want you to understand, I am not against doctors. God chooses to heal us at times medically, at times supernaturally. Sometimes, though, I do think we're too quick to trust in the doctors. I think sometimes we would save money and time by just going to the elders first. You know, visit to church is free. You know, we don't even ask to see your insurance card. And you don't have to wait in the waiting room for an hour before you can see the elders. Hey, why don't you give God a chance to work? Why don't you give God a chance to heal? God heals both through the doctors and through the laying on of hands. God gives to the leaders of the church the responsibility of praying for you. Let them do it. And here James tells us to anoint the sick person with oil. In the Bible, you see, the olive oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the dabbing on of a little oil on the forehead, perhaps, is the tangible contact point that people need when they're praying in faith. We're asking God to heal. But when? And how? And why? When? Well, when we apply the oil to a person's head. How? We're trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what that oil is symbolic of. And why? Because Jesus was crushed like an olive. And it's His healing power that flows from the cross and from His crushing. And so it's a beautiful picture and it's a point of release for our faith. And so come before the elders of the church. They'll anoint you with oil. Who knows if just a little dab will do you tonight. Verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, a chief cause for many physical distresses and psychosomatic illnesses is unconfessed sin. God didn't design us to live under the stress of guilt and sin. It has an adverse effect on us. And this is why we need to confess our sins. You know, Catholicism tells you to go into a dark booth and confess your sins to a priest. Psychiatric counseling tells you to lie down on a couch and Confess your sins to a psychologist. Today, people go on television and they confess their sins to Oprah or Jerry Springer. But God tells you to go to church and confess your sins to one another. God wants us to live in in such an honest and redeeming and grace-filled fellowship with each other where we can be honest with each other. Where we can share our struggles with one another. God wants His church to be a place where we can admit our faults and we can rediscover God's forgiveness through the forgiveness of others. Reminds me of the college kid who went to the laundromat with a bundle of dirty clothes. And he was embarrassed <laughs> to let anyone see, you know, how dirty his clothes were, and so he kept them all bundled up. He threw the bundle into the washer. And then he took it out and then he threw it into the dryer. But when he got back to his dormitory, he discovered that the clothes had gotten wet and then they had gotten dry, but they had never been cleaned. 
And, and that's what happens with sin if it's not confessed or unbundled. You've got to take it out. You've got to separate it. You've got to confess it in order to receive the healing and the forgiveness that you desire. Verse 16 tells us, it ends, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What an incentive to pray. What a wonderful verse. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God always answers persistent, God-glorifying, heartfelt prayer. James gives an example in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah stood up to the prophets of Baal. You remember the story. He even called fire down from heaven. But afterwards, when that old woman Jezebel came up and threatened him, he tucked tail and he ran like a baby. Elijah wasn't superhuman. He stood strong, but he also at times grew discouraged and wanted to quit, just like you and me. Elijah was a regular guy who lived a righteous life. He desired to please God. He knew how to pray. And God's armed with the same. You too can accomplish great things if you desire to please God. If you will get on your knees and pray, who knows what God will do through you. Verses 19 and 20 tell us, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's been said the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. And that's sad. We need to reach out in love, not just to a lost world, but also to a fallen saint. When you see a brother who's stumbled, you know, who's out of it, Rather than condemn him, rather than put him down, go and lift him up. Go and show Christ's love to that prodigal son and help lead him home. Hey, let's live what we believe. What do you say? Hey, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Guys, let's be doers of the word, not hearers only. Should we pray for help? Let's do it. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the challenge that we've been issued once again through the pen of James. Lord, we, as we read this this book, we realize that this was not just written by James to the Jews scattered abroad, but this was written by the Holy Spirit to our hearts here tonight. Lord, help us to take seriously this message. Help us not dilute the gospel, but help us, Lord, to realize that true saving faith will be a faith that acts, will be a faith that works. It'll be a faith that's committed to you. If we really believe, we'll act like it, we'll live like it. Help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers. And we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.